Good morning. We're starting a new chapter today. Uh, we're in John chapter 18. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 1, and I will read through verse 18. I would suggest you follow along in your own Bibles. Let's read. Verse 1, John chapter 18. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out from his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, where he and his disciples entered. And Judas, being uh, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's ser servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the, of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we don't have enough thanks to thank you for all that you have done for us. And, and we're usually aware of what you're doing for us now in this life. You bless us. You, you allow rain to come on the just and the unjust, the godly and the ungodly. You, you give us um, all that we have need of in this life. But God, you've done so much more before our lives, outside of our lives. And, and as we begin to, to, to try and focus and look at the horrors of the cross and and the the horrible glory of uh, of what you've done your passion for us and we look at the the injustice in your arrest and torment and all these things we pray that that we would be able we would find a means to give thanks to you we'd be able to thank you and give glory to your name and, and in this passage we see you jesus as king of kings and lord of lords you're completely in control of the situation we like peter aren't even in control of ourselves. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would bless us, not only with understanding of these things, but with the ability to obey these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 
in the Gospel of John, as you've noticed, I'm sure, um, John leaves a whole lot of information uh, basically to the other guys. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. They, they're, they're writing from the same point of view. Um, we believe John was the last Gospel written, meaning that he would have been aware of the other Gospels that you have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as such, John can write about, um, he can write without many of the details that the synoptic Gospels uh, include. And, and he's like, well, you guys have already read that. I'm going to kind of fill in the details and write my own thing that you guys left out. So the, the upper room discourse, all the red letters from chapter 13 through 17, that's only in John. Uh, only the Gospel of John includes um, those conversations as we have them in John. So, but, but look what John didn't include. There's things that he leaves out, too. Um, he didn't include communion, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, he... Then they go to the garden, but, but John doesn't mention its name. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he doesn't include the prayer of Jesus, the take this cup from me. He doesn't include the sweating great drops of blood. He doesn't include any of that. He, he cuts straight to the chase. Um, and what we see, there's an interesting thing we see in this, this passage right here. Um, we see a sinless man in an appointed named garden about to do battle with Satan's representative. And that should sound familiar to you. Um, this has happened before, but not for a long time. There was another man who had not sinned in a garden who was tested and failed. This has happened before. The last time there was a sinless man in a special garden battling evil, well, man fell as a result. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as what through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. But, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 says this, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So we're getting a replay here. We're getting another garden scene. Um, and, and the battle is real, the temptations are real, and the new Adam, the one who is better than the first man, is in charge and victorious in this chapter. The hard work of the garden prayers, those aren't included in John, uh, but this is, not, this is not because John shies away from Jesus' sufferings. He doesn't. But in the places of suffering, like this night when he is arrested, John is sure to show that Christ, who is suffering, is also completely in control. Christus victor, that's a doctrine. Christ is victor that shows up loud and strong in the Gospel of John. In John's garden scene, the focus is not just on, well, it's not at all, on the prayers of Jesus or... or, or um, the, the sufferings, the physical and emotional, psychological sufferings of Christ. The main focus here is on the power of the Lord, even in the midst of attack. And we have contrasted with Christ's power, the powerlessness of his enemies and even his friends. When, when you read this passage and, and someone asks, well, who's in charge here? There is only one possible answer. It's Jesus. 
And of course, this isn't just John. This is the gospel with a capital G, Christ coming in weakness, living in weakness, under opposition, in humility, in order to show that he is truly glorious and strong. I mean, you, you start at the beginning, you start at Christmas, Jesus was born as a baby. Those guys can't do anything. But he, his birth was announced by angels. He was laid in a manger, but there was a star. There were kings coming. He, was, he submitted to, to baptism as if he were a sinner, but he heard the divine voice of approval saying, this, this isn't a sinner. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we, we know that, you know, we see Christ's humanity, his humility when he's asleep in the boat. But he wakes up and then speaks to the storm, peace be still. Um, we see Jesus in his weakness, weeping at the, at the thought of, of the death of a friend, Lazarus. But in that moment of apparent weakness and sorrow, he calls the dead out of the grave. Now here we see Jesus, he surrenders to arrest. He's tied, we see, we'll see he's beaten, and of course eventually he's killed. But he also, in this passage, he declares, I am, and then he knocks everyone flat on their backs. And of course, the ultimate humility, the ultimate um, humiliation of Christ is, is the cross. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But in that, he defeated sin, death, and Satan. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? So now in the garden, it, it's, it's, it's shown in, in all the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels, that this is a place of suffering. The, the, the name of the garden, Gethsemane, is olive press. And the, it's when the oil, the good stuff, is, is come, you know, comes out of the olives after immense amounts of pressure. And Jesus is undergoing immense amounts of pressure. But he suffers and he, he's arrested. But at the same time, we see he... He declares once more his divinity in this I am statement and everyone falls flat. There is power here. So let's let's lean into the paradox, you know. Let's look look to Jesus who has taken on weakness in order to show his strength, and let's follow him there as best we can. Uh, being humble so that so he can be glorified. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Uh, okay, so in, so in all the... The absence of so many details, um, so many things that John leaves out, like the prayer, the sweating of great drops of blood, the, the disciples sleeping, the name of the garden, and even the things about Judas, like how in the world he got a bunch of soldiers to follow him. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they can fill in the details. They can tell you that stuff. But in the absence of all those details, it makes the, the details that are shared that much more important, um, that much more notable. The, the, you want to hone in and say, well, why did you share this detail if you left all the other stuff out? In the absence of all that other information, John still includes the route taken to the garden. He crossed the brook Kidron. Now, I mentioned the significance, some of the significance of this last week and, and before, but I'll do it again. Jesus is following the same route taken by David when he had to run for his life. When David's son Absalom was trying to overthrow his father and his reign and, and, 
and there was the whole military coup that ensued, David was mourning at that time. He was weeping. And by the look of things, David was defeated. But David was still king the whole time. You go to, you go to the book of 2 Samuel and you read all about this, and you, you see that Absalom was never king. He pretended for a little bit. He thought he had a chance, but he didn't. David never stopped being king. Same with Jesus. This was a necessary and a horrible route to take, but the anointing never left. Jesus is king in this chapter. Jesus is king in these moments of his sufferings. Now, the garden they go to is called Gethsemane, which means olive press. And I, and I mentioned already that, that where olives are pressed, you see the oil, the richness, the value is forced out of the olive through this great amount of pressure. And Jesus is here undergoing immense pressure. And from him, in these moments, richness, power, glory flows. Judas another important character in this passage, he's already been identified as the betrayer. He's been called a devil, even. He's been called the son of perdition. And we've read that the devil actually entered Judas. So at this moment, he is literally possessed. Now in John's telling of the betrayal, the kiss is left out. Judas famously betrayed Jesus with a kiss. But John writes of Judas as the one who had already betrayed Jesus. The verbs he uses, you know, it's past tense. He is the one who had betrayed Jesus in verse 2. And, and it's true that the sin was completed in the heart of Judas, even before Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. Even before the full deed was done, the betrayal had taken place. It's true that Judas betrayed, or yeah, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, but before that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in his secret meeting with the leaders of the people. Before that, he betrayed Jesus in his heart. He had betrayed Jesus when he mocked the worship of Mary, anointing the feet of Jesus. Before that, he betrayed Jesus when he had started to steal money from the ministry funds. He was a betrayer. Sin starts as a seed. Judas in the garden, this is the fruit. Which is why we must always be watchful over small things, small compromises. Because Judas is not just the villain of the story that is there for us to hate. He is a cautionary tale. He is a mirror that we would rather not look into. Now Judas comes, having already betrayed Jesus in his heart, but he comes to fight against God. And look how ready he is for the fight. It says, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, he came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Uh, okay, it's kind of interesting that John uses detachment uh, and officers. There's the, the, a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests. Uh, the word detachment is a semi-technical term, uh, probably around 200 soldiers. But the interesting thing is it's a very Gentile term, a detachment of troops. This refers to Roman soldiers, usually. And since he mentions these two kinds of, of people, there's the detachment and then the officers, um, it seems that there are, you know, that there's officers of the temple security force, Jews, uh, who are leading, or and being led by Judas, um, but they're going with a, a Gentile group of soldiers that are on loan 
to um, the Jews ruling Jerusalem. Judas leads a mixed race opposition against Christ. Jew and Gentile participate in his mock trial, torture, and death. Throughout the Passion, throughout the Passion, we see Jew and Gentile united in murdering Jesus. Chief priests, Herod, Pilate, all of them. But this large fighting force makes you wonder, what did Judas think he was getting into? I mean, he know we know he misunderstood Jesus. We know that Judas uh, desperately misunderstood the situation that he was in. If he thought that Jesus was going to fight, he was completely wrong. Jesus does not fight. He hands himself over. He never resists. As a lamb who is led to the slaughter is silent, so he opens not his mouth. If he thought that Jesus was going to like start throwing punches, well, then he really misunderstood Jesus, didn't he? But if he thought Jesus was going to fight and he thought that 200 guys was going to stop him, well, then he's even more wrong. And that's what we see in the next verses. Verse 4 says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love this. I love this so much. Uh, this is a place of great suffering, of great evil. Uh, the greatest evil, really, is, is about to take place that's ever been in the history of the world. God is about to be murdered. But it's introduced like this. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. Once again, who's in charge here? It's not Judas. It's not those guys. It's not the disciples who are just waking up right now. Jesus knows all things that would come upon him. As if the reader needed a reminder of who is really in control here. It's Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus. Jesus is in control. And Jesus knows what is going to happen. And knowing all things that would come upon him, he goes forward toward the attackers. Now we've seen Jesus anticipate his passion for several chapters. And he's anticipated his suffering uh, with some very relatable emotions. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. If you go to the other Gospels, you read of his prayer in the garden, the, the literal blood, sweat, and tears of a man experiencing the dread of what is to come. Dread, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, as far as a visceral, physical, emotional response, Jesus, as a fully human man, experienced those things. But he does not act according to those emotions. In, in other words, he does not allow those emotions to determine his actions. Someone might say that Jesus was afraid of the cross. And if, if they're only referring to the dread of pain and the, the feeling in the pit of your stomach, perhaps the involuntary reaction of your... Well, then I, I will allow it. But it would be wrong. It would be wrong to say Jesus was fearful in, in that he does not act from a place... Um, from, from a merely emotional place. Jesus is brave, he is courageous, and again, he is completely in control. Jesus goes towards them. He says, whom are you seeking? They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. This is what Jesus is known as in the Gospels, not Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. That, that's a title, meaning Messiah. No one really called him that. 
not until until later after the resurrection. Uh, he, he's not called Jesus, son of Joseph, or Jesus bar Joseph, the way the sons of Zebedee are identified as such, or, or many other characters we meet in the New Testament are called, you know, so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Possibly this could be because the events surrounding Jesus' birth were under question and surrounded by controversy, and his enemies, um, who, who would say, well, we know who our father is, indicating that Jesus did not, so they don't call him Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus is not identified by the place of his birth, either, the city of David, Bethlehem, even though there's prophecies surrounding that, um, that place and his birth there. No, he's called Jesus of Nazareth, and it's not a compliment. Nazareth is weakness itself. And Jesus, of course, he owns it. He owns it. Nazareth is the place where Nathaniel says, is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus says, I am. <laughs> and Jesus is from Nazareth. And Jesus says to these men, after they say who they're seeking, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he. Now really, he just says, I am. The word he there may be in italics in your, in your Bibles, indicating that it, it's not there in the original Greek. He, he, it's just two words. It's ego I me. Um, the he is added. What Jesus says is, and what he said before in the Gospels is, I am. Now that statement knocked down over 200 people. But it should at least send shivers down your spine, if you know anything at all. The I am statements have a very real, very powerful presence in the Gospel of John and in the whole of Scripture. This is the name that the Lord God uses to, to introduce himself to Abraham at the burning bush. And, and John has picked up that theme with, without much subtlety. In John, there have been seven direct I am statements where people have seen Jesus to claim, they've, they've heard him claim the same deity as God in the burning bush. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then in addition to just those, those seven, there are two more statements, at least, that are not metaphors. Um, like um, like the the seven I am statements, but just th these are these extra two are statements of God's name in John eight verse fifty six. Jesus tells the Pharisees, "I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am." And then here in the garden again, he says, "I am." Jesus, betrayed and arrested, is still God of very God, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. Verse 9. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus asks the question again. Now, whenever God asks a question, he's not doing it to gain information that he is somehow lacking, right? And Jesus here is definitely flexing his deity. And when God asks a question, he is giving the hearer an opportunity to examine themselves, their thoughts, the situation, and come to the truth. When God asks in the Garden of Eden, where are you? 
He's not wondering where he misplaced his new creation. He's like, I just made a person. I left him somewhere. No, that's not what's going, going on at all. He's allowing for Adam and Eve to consider. When he asks Elijah the question on the Mount Horeb, what are you doing here? He asks it twice. But it's not because he doesn't know. He's allowing Elijah's heart to give expression to what is weighing it down and hopefully come to a full understanding of himself and the situation God has brought him to. The Lord asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? That's not the kind of question that's begging an answer. It's just allowing the person to think. And at the end of John's gospel, uh, later on in the book, Jesus asks the same question three times of Peter, do you love me? And he's not asking this because he has his doubts. Jesus doesn't have doubts. He is asking a question in order to teach and in order to provide an opportunity to the person being asked. All the best teachers ask the best questions. So Jesus asked once, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Jesus says, I am with such force and authority that it literally, literally knocks them off their feet, this is definitely a question for considering, that's worth considering. Who are we? Who are we seeking? Who are we trying to? Are we trying to arrest this guy that can knock us over with a word? So Jesus asks again, whom are you seeking? Really think about it this time. Who are you really fighting against? Are they, do they have, you know, anger in their heart against a carpenter? Not really. Do they hate all rabbis? No. Do they have a problem with Jesus just telling people to be kind and being nice? No, they really don't. That's not why Jesus was killed. When Jesus says, who are you really seeking? Who are you trying to kill? The correct answer is God. They are fighting against God. And he asks the question, but underneath the question is, are you sure you want to be doing this? And the answer is yes. They give the same answer. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And this is where Jesus, who is strong in his weakness, also uses his strength for the benefit of those in his care. This is why beholding the glory of the Lord is so amazing. He is beautiful in his own right. He is good. Even if you don't receive it, even if you never existed to receive his blessings or to observe his beauty, he would still be the ultimate good. So it's worth it. It's worth seeing the glory of God without any extra blessings. However, how amazing is this grace that the great and glorious God uses his strength, his power, his majesty for the benefit of little lost sheep behind him. Jesus stands in front of them and says, well, then let these people go. I've told you I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the word might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. Jesus stands as a shield between his people and the enemy. And, and the shield gets the full brunt of the attack. That's the way it works. Jesus standing before an armed mob with the disciples behind him saying, let these go their way. That's a really solid picture of salvation itself. You live because he died. You are free because he allowed himself to be arrested. His power has just been displayed. With a word, he cast his enemies to the ground. But this force was not for his own benefit. He does not show who 
is in control in order to protect himself. He's doing all of this, everything, in order to protect the disciples and, I believe, to provoke his enemies. Because no matter how much they tied him, I think the guy who tied the last knot would know he, can get, he could get out of this. He's letting me do this, isn't he? Yes. Yes, he is. But Jesus, he, he displays his, his majesty, his glory, his power in order to protect the weak, to save them. He's doing all of this to save you. Now, Jesus has already said in his prayer in John, uh, John chapter 17, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And he's keeping them. He's keeping them safe here. Some of them don't want to be safe. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high, pri high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now another ingredient uh, missing from John's account, uh, included in Luke's account, is the healing of Malchus's ear. Jesus put the ear back on. Um, we don't get that in John, we get it in Luke. Uh, but now it, it might seem strange to some that Peter would have a sword in the first place. Uh, in the stained glass pictures in the children's Bible storybooks, none of the disciples are wearing, you know, walking around with a sidearm. Uh, but in the upper room, we know that at least two of the guys there had swords. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 38. Um, in fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus says this. He says, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then they say, we have two swords, and Jesus says it is enough. So, so Peter was one of the guys with one of the swords. Jesus didn't want them to be armed to protect him but rather themselves, presumably, or perhaps each other. Peter is not acting in self-defense here, though. He's coming and wanting to take care of Jesus. And, and you can hardly blame him, but the fact is that Peter still doesn't understand anything that's going on. He's really the other side of Judas. To, to, two sides of one coin. Judas misunderstands the entire, uh, the entire situation. He doesn't understand... Uh, what he's doing, that, that he thinks 200 people could stop Jesus, and then he thinks Jesus is going to fight, like one or the other, either way he's wrong. Well, Peter kind of thinks the same thing. He's thinking like, yeah, we're going to fight, absolutely, Let, let's go and let's fight. And, and that's, that's not the Lord's will at this time. He's still going back to a place where he wants to say, no, Lord. Like when Jesus first told the disciples that he would go and suffer and die, and Peter brings him aside and tries to convince him that his idea is a bad one. And Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan. Peter is still resisting God's plan. But once again, we see that neither Peter nor Judas nor Malchus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Now, this little episode has some interesting elements just as far as the story goes. Peter and Malchus are both servants of priests. Peter is a servant of Jesus, the great high priest. Malchus is a servant of, uh, of another priest. Uh, both are trying to accomplish things outside of God's will. Both Peter and Malchus are doing this, both operating in the flesh rather than the spirit. Both are ultimately ineffective. Jesus is not defeated, and Malchus isn't killed. And Jesus ultimately has mercy on both. 
he heals Malchus. And in a much deeper sense, Jesus heals Peter. Now the last words of verse 11 again show the focus of Jesus. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? This should remind you of chapter 12, verse 27. When Jesus said, my soul is, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is the single-mindedness, the focus of Jesus. Now, verse 12, we read, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So Jesus is arrested. Now don't miss the injustice in all of this. Now of course he was sinless. Of course he is innocent. And we know that his death was undeserved. His death was unjust. But remember also that this was an unjust arrest as well. It was night. There's 200 guys with weapons. And when he surrenders himself to them, they tie him up. Again, just like the, the armed mob itself, this this tying of Jesus is a sign of deep, of a deep misunderstanding of the entire situation. If they thought Jesus was going to escape or fight, if they left him untied, or if they left him untied, then they were absolutely wrong. But if they thought that they could keep him from fighting or escaping or defeating them just by tying his hands, then they are even more wrong. They take him to Annas first and then Caiaphas. There's some explaining to do here. Annas had been the high priest. Uh, from around around uh, the year 6 AD to the year 15. Annas was a, a stubborn kind of guy. He did not play well with others. So the Romans didn't like him very much. So when the Romans don't like a guy in power, um, if they're in a good mood, then they just remove him and make sure the next guy is easier for them to work with. The next guy happened to be Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. Annas uh, or Ananias in, in some of the, some texts, Annas was a politically connected and politically astute guy. He knew which buttons to push and which strings to pull, which is probably why they take him there first, take Jesus there first. And, and this is evident. It's evident in the fact that even though he was removed and deposed, he was still, he still figured out a way to get his son-in-law put in this powerful position of high priest. Uh, backroom deals are going on in the life of Annas and Caiaphas. The people still looked to Annas as a leader. And, and some of the more anti-Roman zealots saw him as the real high priest, where, where Caiaphas was really just a puppet high priest. So the people were divided on this issue. Annas made a reputation for himself of being cunning, deceitful, and cruel. Even the Jewish Talmud contains a line about his family, and it's far from flattering. So just to get you a picture of where Jesus is going, who he's going to be interacting with um, during this trial, the Talmud says this, it says, Woe to the house of Annas! Woe to their serpents hiss! They are high priests, their sons are keepers of the treasury, their sons-in-law are guardians of the temple, and their servants beat the people with staves. That's where Jesus is taken. So he has a near-biblical reputation for having people beat. That's where they take Jesus. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, technically the high priest, in an official capacity, uh, he was the high priest, but he, he evidently wielded less power politically. Uh, however, it was Caiaphas, as it, as it's mentioned here, who prophesied unwittingly 
that it would be better if one man should die for the people than if all the people die. You can read about that in John 11. We studied that several several weeks, months ago. In that episode, uh, in John 11, 49 through 53, Caiaphas isn't speaking morally, just logically. Uh, in other words, he says, I think it would be better if that guy dies than us. I mean, which would you rather have? That one guy die? I don't care if he's guilty or innocent. It's just it's just cheaper. It's just cheaper if he dies and he the Romans deal with him, but then they don't take away our place in our nation. But there was a truth in his words that that, that is deeper than his mind could fathom. Jesus was truly dying for the people. And John shares this to remind us that the events of this dark night have already been determined. Jesus already knew what was coming. And that the unwitting accomplices that should be seen as evil, yes, and, and, and this story should be seen as, as tragic, um, but even the worst of them are really the bumbling henchmen of a, of a comedy. They don't know what's going on. They are not in control, even if they think that they are. The unwitting accomplices, the evil men going about their evil deeds, are not as free and independent as they think. And we remember the Psalms, fret not because of evildoers. There is a God who is working all things together, and even the heart of the wicked king or priest, as the case may be, is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns that wherever he wishes. He's also reminding us that the one in charge has a single focus. John is reminding us that Jesus, the king in this chapter, is focused on one thing, and that is superseding all the evil schemes of man. The goal is this, the, that one man should die for the people. This was God's will, not the will of Caiaphas. This is the purpose of Jesus' life. The deep mysteries of the Incarnation are only prelude to the ultimate truth of the substitutionary atonement. Christ's death on the cross for our sins. He is in charge. Now we're going to read through verse 18 now. Because as the main point of this passage is this, that Christ is in charge, it is made uh, more powerful, more, more clear by contrast. Because the obvious opposite has to be seen as well, that we are not in charge. That the people who think they are in charge are not in charge. And that includes Peter. So let's go from verse 15. It says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now this, this begins uh, another tragedy, really, another tragic story of Peter, but this story, it starts a story that we'll finish up next week. And this is the first of three denials. But Peter serves as a counterpoint to Christ's faithfulness throughout this chapter. I started out by mentioning that John leaves uh, out many details that the other Gospels include, but he also includes pieces of information that no one else uses. The other Gospels mention the garden arrest. All four Gospels, all four Gospels mention the ear getting cut off. Only John tells us that it was Peter that did it. 
I wonder how Peter felt about that. I think there was some maybe healthy competition between those two guys. Um, only John mentions it was Peter that was operating in the flesh in the garden, enough to where he cut off this guy's ear. John is directing our attention to the all-powerful, sacrificing Christ set against the weak and impulsive Peter. And at the end of the chapter, and really at the end of John's gospel, there is no one presented as more needy than Peter. Uh, Jesus says, go tell the disciples and Peter that, that I'm alive. At the end, John, Jesus spends that special time with Peter to restore him to the ministry. There is no one in the gospel who desires grace and mercy more than Peter. There's no one who is more helpless without Christ than Peter. And this, again, is our mirror. We see ourselves in Peter, in his failings, and that's a good thing, because we see Christ's mercy given to Peter directly. Peter and the other disciple, this is John, this is the author, he's kind of going incognito here, not mentioning himself by name, that's his style. We've already seen that in John. But he's the other disciple. Peter and the other disciple, John, they follow at a distance. Now, John knows people at the high priest's house. He's connected. Um, he knows people. He knows, he's got friends in high places. And, and he talks to some people. Uh, so he, then he goes back to Peter. And on the way in, there's this servant girl who says to Peter, you're not one of this man's disciples too, are you? Now, there's a very important word there. Also, you are not also one of this man's disciples. That means that the girl and presumably the people inside, they knew that this other disciple, John, was a disciple of Jesus. And John apparently doesn't really have a problem with being identified with Jesus. And it doesn't seem like it causes him any problems from the other people. He doesn't get beat up or anything. In fact, it's only John who is at the foot of the cross on Golgotha with Mary. The other disciples had scattered. So John, John remains close. He is the closest one to Christ at his, in his passion and at his death. Um, but Peter doesn't want to be that close. And he makes his first denial. And he moves toward the second by warm, warming himself by the fire where the enemies of Jesus stood. And we see the slide of compromise. The same, same thing again that we've seen with Judas. He starts off by these little secret sins and then it develops into denying Christ, betraying Christ. Peter starts by keeping a distance and we'll see that distance grows and the compromises become more compromising and Peter goes down a path that he, he deeply regrets. We'll talk more about Peter next week. His story is a sad story. But here he serves as a contrast to Jesus. The work of the flesh being opposed to the work of the Spirit. Jesus is presented to us humble, vulnerable, weak, in the sense that he is arrested and beaten. And he surrenders to, to, the, um, to the army, the, the mob. But he's still all-powerful. He's in control. He's mighty to save. He called this the hour of his glorification. And Peter is the alternative, lashing out, attempting to solve things with his own strength, then playing it safe, protecting himself, keeping out of harm's way. But in all reality, he is the weaker. He is being destroyed from the inside out, Satan attempting to sift him like wheat. And were it not for the prayers and protection of Jesus, we would all go the way where Peter is headed. So what do we do? So we, we, look at, we look at Christ. We look at him in his weakness in order to see him in his strength. We look at the cross. 
We look to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, who chose the way of weakness in order to protect those who are truly weak. And let us look to him with all our hope and all our need, for all our needs, recognizing him as the only Savior we can have, confessing that all our ill attempts at success and safety, those are nothing compared to the protection he gives. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Let us be the righteous who run into it, not trusting in our own strength, in our own righteousness, in our own efforts, but instead putting all our hope in the God who died, in Christ who is crucified, in the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This is where our hope lies. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again. And we ask again that you would give us the words um, to say thank you more fully, more earnestly, more fervently for all that you have done for us. You are a good shepherd and we are lost sheep. We can do nothing apart from you and we, we repent and apologize for our attempts at doing things apart from you. God, we see that you are completely in control and if you are completely in control in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you were betrayed, arrested, tied, beaten. We have every confidence that you remain on the throne, that you are king now, that you are the anointed high priest, and that you know exactly what's going to happen next in our lives. You know uh, exactly what to do in every situation. So we trust you completely, implicitly, and we love you and desire to love you more. It is in your name we pray. Amen.